A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Rav Pinchas Horowitz, known by his work The Hafla, is generously sponsored, L'Zecher Nishmas, Rav David ben Rav Eliezer Hakayin, a descendant of the Hafla. So before we get to the Hafla, I just uh, we just had a lot of uh, great feedback. And the last two episodes uh, were wildly popular, judging from the volume of the feedback I got. One was on the Rebbe the Rashab of Chabad and Zionism, his position on the uh, Zionist movement. And then after that, we had uh, Railroads and the Jews, or Jews and Railroads, however you want to see it. And um, both of them were very uh, popular. So the feedback on the Rashab one was uh, consisted primarily of warnings that I better not mess up part two when I continue to describe how the Chabad position on Zionism evolved with the, the subsequent uh, Rebbes and leaders of the Chabad movement, the Friedrich Rebbe the Rayas, and then the last Rebbe Rebbe Nachman Mendel, um, so I got so scared from all the warnings that I received that I'm wary of doing part two altogether. But if a sponsor comes along, then I'll reconsider. So if you're interested in hearing more about Chabad and, and Zionism, then please contact me about that sponsorship at uh, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. But the feedback I received about the Railroad episode was very much unexpected in its volume. The uh, topic seems to have resonated really well with the listeners and seems to have, seems to have been received well. I'll read just a f- couple of great tidbits from, the, from what I received. Um, one is that Tzemach Tzedek worked hard to prevent the railway from traveling through Lubavitch. Instead, it went to Rudnia, which is about 18 kilometers away. There was another rail station in Vitebsk, which was a bit further, but offered many more routes, and that's how the Hasidim would arrive at Lubavitch. Another one, when the train tracks were being laid near Bells, the Belzerov gave a krechts and said, I hoped that Mashiach would come achishena. I now see that the process of be'ita is beginning. And a third one, the Sanzerov said, as long as he's alive, the ban, which is the train, will not stop in Sanz, and so it was. So there you have it, one after another, the great uh, Hasidic leaders saw the train as a challenge of modernity, as even possibly a threat, 
and um, and therefore something to be reckoned with, which fits uh, dovetails right into the whole theme of what I was trying to express uh, at the time. It was this incredible technological advancement that encroached on the traditional way of uh, Jewish life in the Pale of Settlement and in Galicia and in Poland. Um, so we um, will move on to talk a little bit about the Hafla, Rav Pinchas Horowitz, the great rabbi of Frankfurt in the 18th century. In fact, on uh, trips to Germany, trips to Frankfurt, so we go to the old Jewish cemetery in uh, in Frankfurt, we go to the new one too, or Shamshin or Hirsch's, but we go also to the old one, where which is pretty much destroyed, but they restored some of the old uh, tombstones of the great Sadiqim who were rabbis in Frankfurt, among whom is the Hafla, of Pinchas Horowitz. So we go there and we daven by the Hafla's kever. In general, there's, I feel, not enough trips to Germany. Uh, most of the trips go to Eastern Europe. They're more popular, but there is so much potential. There's so much Jewish history there, and there's so much to see. So we hope to do more trips to Germany as well, once we brought up the Hafla anyway. There are three facets of how the Hafla is remembered. And there's somewhat of a competition over his memory. The indisputable and perhaps primary activity of the Hafla was that he was a leading rabbinical leader, first in small towns in Poland, such as Witkow and Lechowitz. And from there, he was imported west to Frankfurt in Germany, well, which was still in the last stages of its golden age, before it uh, Frankfurt um, in the 19th century uh, when 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 left to pretty much the entire community left uh, traditional uh, Orthodox uh, Jude- traditional Judaism until um, until later on in the century of Shamshin or Fall Hirsch came and uh, restored the crown to its glory so to speak but the flow is still there at the early stages of of the m- movement towards either reform or secularization so he was there before that really took off. Um, so this was a very prestigious appointment, and he served there for 33 years until his passing in 1805. This is the this is the Hafla's rabbinic or leadership, or even we'll call it his yaki or German side to him. That's one aspect of his legacy. Um, the, a second one is maybe his most famous one today is this farim that he wrote, his classic works Hafla the Mikneh or the Makneh, however you pronounce it. Halachic correspondence, his works on Shas, his his very classic Panim Yafis, which is his commentary on the Torah, which was published posthumously, um, but especially Hafla on Ksubis and Makna or Mikna, which is on Kiddushin, they have become classics in the Yeshiva world and beyond as commentaries to the Masechtis studied in Yeshivas worldwide. This is his we'll call it yeshivish legacy, not litvish legacy, because he was not litvish at all. He was from Chartkiv in Galicia, and he spent some time in Poland and then in Germany. He was never in Lithuania or Lithuanian by any stretch of the imagination, but we can call it his um, yeshivish legacy. And then there is his third legacy, or his third identity, which is his identity as a chassid. And this is the primary source of dispute until today, which is makes uh, his biography more fun. Um, he was a the the, the Rav Pinchas Horowitz was a student of Rav Doivber, the Maggid of Mizrich, and he definitely was a student of the Maggid of Mizrich. 
though some continue to deny it for whatever their agenda that it serves them. Presumably it's because it's a hard pill for Litvaks to swallow that the author of such yeshivish and lumdish svarim as the Hafla and the Makna was one of the leading rabbinical, and was one of the rabbi, leading rabbinical leaders in the Jewish world at the time, to boot was a chassid. On the other hand, as we'll see, there's been a tendency in the opposite direction to inflate and exaggerate his role as a chassid and his student in the court of the Magid, and to bestow upon him the coveted title as one of the Talmidei Hamuvak, one of the prime disciples of the Magid. So there's this tendency among those in the Hasidic community to inflate it the other way. So the distinction of the closest Talmidim of the Magid probably goes to one of his more famous Talmidim, perhaps even the Hafla's older brother, Reb Shmuel Shmelke of Nicholsburg, or Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, or Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, or Reb Meilach of Vizhensk, or Reb Aaron of Karlin, or Reb Shneir Zalman Liadi the Alter Rebbe, etc., etc., someone else. You're supposed to pick your favorite dynasty and claim that the founder was the closest Talmud of the Magid. That's the generally accepted policy. Either way, um, his brother, Reb Shmelke, whom he was very close with, uh, definitely brought him to the Magid, and Reb Pinchas Horovitz definitely spent some time there. And it also seems that he personally observed Hasidic rite and custom in his personal life for the remainder of his life. This must be qualified, however, because it seems that he did not spend that much time by the Magid and definitely did not spread it to others. He did not use his rabbinic platform to spread it and to teach it. He never used it publicly. He never started a dynasty. And his whole story of his relationship to the Hasidic world and his Hasidic identity is is a quite an interesting story, a story which we'll delve into later on in this episode. Even more bizarre is the assertion that the Hafla studied at the Vilna Gain. Um, that also never happened, though they may have known each other, but prob- most probably they only knew of each other and nothing more. So with the above three facets of his identity and of his legacy in mind, um, what it does suggest is the reality that we do know from other sources is that Rav Pinchas Harvitz was one of the most universally respected rabbis and leaders of his day right until contemporary times, and there was a broad consensus of, of, of acceptance of him, who he was as a person, as a leader, as a rabbi, and therefore everyone tries to claim him as their own, and that's actually a praiseworthy trait, and we see what type of person he was as a result, the fact that everyone wants to claim him, and it's because he was very universally popular. So let's go into the background of who the Hafla was and his life and career. So the world that he was born into was the 18th century, 1731. In Eastern Europe, the 18th century, in traditional Jewish life of Eastern Europe, we're talking about the time that the Vilna Gain uh, is alive. We're talking about the time that the Hasidic movement is spreading. We're talking about the time that eventually is the partitions of Poland. That's in Eastern Europe. And of course, since he moves to Western Europe and Central Europe, so what's the 18th century Jewry in Eastern, in, excuse me, in Central Europe looking like? There's the old rabbinic world, which is having some challenging times, first with the Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbeinus, and Ibishit's controversy, then with the Kleva Get controversy, which I'll get to in a second. There's also the beginnings of change, the uh, the early um, early Haskalah in Berlin, Moses Mendelssohn, Naftali Hertz Wiesel, which also is related to the Hafla's career. So that's what's going on in the backdrop of the Jewish world 
of the 18th century. So he's born into that in 1731 in Chartkiv in Galicia to a famous rabbinic family. The Horowitzes were very prominent throughout the generations in Poland. At the time of his birth, it was still the old Polish kingdom. Um, he was hired to, to become the rabbi in Frankfurt, Rabbi Horowitz, the year of the first partition in 1772. So he was not in Poland once the kingdom uh, fell apart. Um, Rav Pinchas Horowitz's father, Tzvi Hirsch, was the rabbi of the town in Chartkev, and and he grew up as he was a student of his father, and he also later studied together with his illustrious brother, Rav Shmuel Shmelke, later on of Nicholsburg in Moravia. And he was then appointed to uh, his first rabbinical position in Vitkov, which was also in Galicia, near Tarnopol. And then later on, Rav Pinchas Horowitz becomes a rabbi in Lechevich, which is further north, today in Belarus, it was sometime during this time period that he had a connection with the Magad of Mizrich and became affiliated with the Hasidic movement. His older brother, Rav Shmelk, of course, was, like I said, one of the greatest students of the Magad, and he seemed, uh, his, he seemed to have brought his younger brother along. Uh, Sir Pinchas went to the Magad as well, and like I said, his level of affiliation is a matter of dispute. Um, included in this dispute is the status of his Sefer Panim Yafis, his commentary on the Torah, and the Hasidic ideas therein on one hand, but his not citing teachings of the Magid directly by name on the other hand. So there were those who went on to claim that his work was censored, as it was only published some two decades following his passing. This is another part of the dispute, which continues until this very day. Since this is one of the most exciting things about the Hafla's life, I'm going to put it aside for now, and I will choose to elaborate on this further, after wrapping up the rest of his biography, and we'll focus on that for a couple of minutes at the end of this episode. So in 1772, um, the is invited to fill the prestigious position as the chief rabbi of Frankfurt, one of the most prominent rabbinic positions in the Jewish world. So he leaves Eastern Europe for Germany, where he remains for the rest of his life until his passing in the year 1805. The background of his appointment is actually also an interesting story. Frankfurt always had prestigious rabbis of their community, and very often they were, weren't just prestigious, they were, one of the most, they were some of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history. One of the most famous ones was, also in the 18th century, Rabbi Yaakov Yeshua Falk, the Pnei Yeshua, who was the rabbi in, in Frankfurt in, in the first half of the century. Following his passing in 1756, the Avbezdin of the Frankfurt Rabbinical Court uh, was served as the rabbi. His name was Avram Abish of Lisa. You'll notice that almost all of the rabbis there during this time period were imports from Poland. This was actually quite common in many German cities during the 17th, 18th, and even the 19th centuries, which is quite an interesting phenomenon in itself, and we'll save that for another time about the importing of rabbis to Germany from Poland over the centuries. Um, in 1766, this Rabbi Avram would be, uh, who was the rabbi then in Frankfurt, would be in the center of one of the most famous rabbinic controversies of modern times, the Kleva Get. The Kleva Get story deserves its own episode and is a fascinating story, but suffice to say for the context of our story with Afla that there was a groom from Mannheim, who married his bride from Bonn, another city in Germany, later famous as the capital of West Germany. And following a sequence of events, immediately following their marriage, he decided to divorce her and move to England. He obtained the get in the city of Kleva by the town rabbi, Rabbi Sro Lifshitz, 
whose grandson and namesake, Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz of Danzig, was the author of the Teferis Yisrael on uh, commentary on the Mishnayis. Subsequently, the groom in question was claimed to have had a, suffered a nervous breakdown prior to his sending the get, and therefore his mental state would halachically classify him as a shaita, and therefore not capable of delivering the get. Being that Frankfurt was in the middle of all these other towns, it was in between Mannheim and Bonn and not far from Cleva, the Frankfurt Rabbinical Court was asked to rule in this case, and they decided that the get was not kosher, and the woman is still halachically married. On the other hand, most of the leading rabbis of the day, the Shagas Aryeh, Rabbi Leib Ginsburg, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbi Cheska Landau, the Neid Behuda, and many, many, many others ruled that the get was kosher. So following the entire controversy, there's this huge controversy that rocks the Jewish world, primarily in Central Europe, but it even extended into Eastern Europe, for the next two or three years, but following the entire controversy, and when Rav Ram Abish of Lisa passed away in 1769, so they needed to, the Frankfurt community needed a new rabbi. So the Kahal decreed that the only accept, acceptable successor would be someone who did not rule against the Frankfurt Besden during this whole saga. Um, so they didn't leave that many candidates available, so it actually boiled down to three candidates. Rav Pinchas Horowitz, the Haflah, in fact, his brother of Shmelka, who was considered a candidate as well, and another rabbi who I don't recall his name currently, um, and Rav Pinchas Horowitz is the one who's appointed. So is his refraining from weighing in on that dispute, and he chose not to get involved, and being that he was one of the only rabbis in Europe who did not get involved, it won him this was able to win him the appointment to the Frankfurt rabbinate. In his capacity as rabbi, he was quite beloved by his community. Um, they never had any objections to him or anything that he did, which is quite an impressive accomplishment for a rabbi. He also served as the head of the Frankfurt yeshiva, uh, which was one of the leading yeshivas during the 18th century uh, in uh, in Central Europe. One of his prized students in this yeshiva was Reb Maisha Seifer, the future Hassam Seifer, who grew up in Frankfurt while the Hafla was the rabbi. It seems that the Hafla at this time personally pl- personally prayed according to the Kabbalistic customs which were adopted by the Hasidic movement, and he may have personally observed other Hasidic customs as well. But in his public persona, he did not project his Hasidism, neither did he teach any Hasidic teachings, or did he, nor did he lead a Hasidic court. Everything he did seemed to have been a private affair. It was also during his tenure as rabbi in Frankfurt that the early Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, commenced in Berlin, on the other side of Germany, where Moses Mendelssohn published his Biur, and then in 1782, the famous Maskil Naftali Herzwiesel published his pamphlet Divrei Shalom Ve'emes, which was a treatise on the reforming of, uh, on the call to reform Jewish educational life, and was one of the early Maskilic literature to challenge traditional norms and to change traditional Jewish life in communities, in Jewish communal life and Jewish traditional life. So this was a big, uh, big big issue at the time, and the Hafla was one of the many rabbis who joined in the opposition to Wiesel and delivered a public protest speech in Frankfurt decrying Wiesel and his work, the Divrei Shalem Ve'emes. He maintained, the Hafla maintained an active correspondence in this regard with other rabbis of his day to coordinate their efforts on this encroachment on Jewish traditional life. In his later years, the winds of change reached Frankfurt itself, 
and he led the traditional elements of the community to try and attempt to prevent those developments um, with uh, limited success. Later on, uh, when he passed away and his son, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Horowitz, would succeed him as rabbi of Frankfurt, he'd continue his father's legacy in a losing battle as the Frankfurt community fell to reform secularism and even assimilation. By the early decades of the 19th century, the storied community of Frankfurt would be swept away by modernization and the traditional community would only be restored and revived rather later on in the century with the arrival of Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch. Um, either way, the Hafla authored a pamphlet titled Teichachas Musser about the whole Mendelssohn-Wiesel uh, issue or affair. Um, it's interesting that it seems that Rav Pinchas Horowitz was popular even among the non-Jews of the area and would sometimes and they would sometimes even seek out his advice or assistance uh, as well. Even more interesting that I saw that Al-Fasi uh, cites uh, quite an interesting uh, idea that the Hafla engaged in poetry. He composed poetry. Um, and he even wrote a poem in honor of the German monarchs of his day, Leopold II, Franz II, and even he says there, even in honor of Napoleon. I wonder if that's true, but that's what... I, I saw in the source. Uh, Ofasi usually has has his source as well. Sometimes he uh, he exaggerates or quotes legend as well. So it could be that it's true. Um, his um, so he I said his son succeeded him. He also had a son-in-law who was his nephew, um, who was the son of his brother of Shmelka. He also had a grandson named Yaakov Yeshua Horowitz, who was the son-in-law of of Ephraim Zalman Margolis the base of Ephraim, who's also a fascinating personality, and he was involved in the publishing, uh, or he really initiated the publishing, or oversaw the publishing of the Panim Yafes, his commentary on the Torah. So now we get, that's uh, the basic biography of the Hafla. Now we get to the whole story, the uh, main part of the story, and the exciting part of the story, about how much was the Hafla a chassid. So several years ago, um, there was this uh, dispute on the pages of Torah journals. Um, in the Yerusha Seinu Torah journal, you had uh, several articles by Reb David Kamenetsky on one side of the dispute, and in the, in the uh, base Aaron v. Yisrael Torah journal, um, you had on the other side of the suit, you had Reb Yisrael Nassen Heschel and Reb Yitzchak Yeshaya Weiss. Um, and they two went at each other. And uh, in a very respectful way, of course, they're just uh, you know discussing history, and and the facts, and um, and about how much was the aflachas, and it's a very exciting back and forth. And in this context, I want to mention something: is that the usefulness of Wikipedia, and many 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 people have this ambivalent relationship with Wikipedia. But is it? It is a good source. It's not a good source. It is cheating to use it. It's not cheating. I personally use it every single day, many times a day, and I can't live without it. And um, and I I find it incredibly useful. I think this is the a place just to mention how useful it is. It's all about um, how how to use it. You know, if if if, if Wikipedia writes things in the article uh, that uh, that don't have a clear source and seem a bit odd, then obviously you have to take it with a grain of salt and perhaps dismiss it altogether. But the idea is, is that they bring the sources on the bottom. And I'm not someone who goes through old issues of Yerusha Senu or base RNV Yisrael when I prepare episodes. I'm just not doing it. I refuse to, and I don't have the time to. But lo and behold, on the bottom of the 
page, the Hebrew Wikipedia, of course, uh, English Wikipedia is not worth much in modern Jewish history. Um, they, they have the, uh, the, the uh, references to this entire correspondence with full links to all the essays uh, that discuss the Hafla and every single essay of, of Kamenetsky and of Yisrael Nassim Heschel and of Yitzhak Yishai Weiss and the whole back and forth. So right there in front of your eyes, you have all the links. You click on it, you read it. You have to spend a few hours reading it, which I did. So and it's very interesting. It's fascinating. If anyone is curious about this uh, uh dispute about how much of a chassid the Aflo was. I highly recommend that you go ahead onto the Hebrew Wikipedia page to see all these articles from Yerushasenu and Beis Arm Yisrael and the whole back and forth. It's very interesting. But it's all about the train of, chain of transmission. The information is all out there. I'm at most an armchair historian, probably not even that. I'm just a conduit. I just read it. I spent the time to read what's out there and available for everyone. I did not go digging in an archive. I just happened to read it, and I'm happy to share it with all the beloved listeners of Jewish History Soundbites. And I would never have gotten to it without Wikipedia. That's just a side point. Um, So in this back and forth, all these uh, essays being written and, and, and... things being thrown back and forth. So one of the points of contention is the legend that the two brothers of Pinchas and Rav Shmuel Shmelka, uh, of later of Frankfurt and Nicholsburg, so there's a contention made that both were appointed at the same time to either Nicholsburg or Frankfurt, and they couldn't decide who would go where. And they came to ask the advice of the Rebbe, the Magad of Mizrich, and he advised where each one of them should become rabbi. This legend likely stems from the fact that, like I mentioned before, the Frankfurt community had both brothers as candidates. But in all likelihood, the story did not take place um, altogether, as Rav David Kamenetsky convincingly argues that principally as a result of the fact that Rav Shmelka was only hired to the rabbinate of Nicholsburg a year and a half or so later, so that would make it that they couldn't have been hired at the same time. In addition to the fact that the very oddity of the that two the whole story seems a bit odd. The two communities in Germany, two sides of Germany, one's in Western Germany, one's in Moravia, they coordinated their rabbinical appointments with each other and resigned their respective fates to the faraway Magad of Mizrich in Eastern Europe. It just seems a bit strange. That's one point of contention. Another major area of dispute is if anyone censored the Panem Yafis, Panem Yafis commentary to the Torah, the, the Haflaz, uh, uh, commentary to the Torah prior to its printing to remove any direct references to the Magid. On one hand, it seems likely that, that it was. It seems likely that it was censored since it contains a lot of Hasidic-style Torah, but no quotes from the great Tzaddikim of Hasidus, which is odd. In addition, it was published posthumously, so it, you know, it could be that other people had their hands on it or fingerprints on it. In addition, another you know, circumstantial evidence, it seems that some of the great tzaddikim of the Hasidic movement, such as the Divrei Chaim of Tzans, such as the Gera Rebbe, the Imre Emes, it seems, and again, this is not, not clear if this is, a, you know, the testimonies that they, that they actually said this, but it seems that they may have said, they may have testified that the Panem Yafis was doctored and censored from any reference to the Magad of Mizrich. In addition, the claim was made that a manuscript version of Panem Yafis was found and that it contained direct references to the Magid and other early Hasidic tzaddikim, which would support this contention that the printed version was censored. 
That's on one side of the dispute. On the other hand, however, the one who sees it to print is Rephraim Zalman Margolis, the base of Ephraim, who had nothing against Hasidim. And he would seem to be above suspicion. And he expended great efforts to have this printed in its entirety. And it seems that uh, no one would have any issues with him personally. Also is the interesting fact that the Aptarov, who was one of the greatest, uh, the Zkan HaAdmairim, he was called one of the greatest leaders of the Hasidic movement at the time, he wrote a warm approbation to this edition. So how would he if it was censored? So the question remains, and both sides do not seem to concede on this point. So that's a, a very strong bone of uh, contention. Another point that's brought up in this back and forth between these uh, these uh, writers is another is a famous letter, Rabbi Schneider Zalman of Liadi, the Alta Rebbe, Tour of Pinchas Horovitz Dafla, following his release from prison after Yitzchak Kislev, where the Alter Rebbe explicitly in the letter evokes the memory of the time that they spent together at the Magad of Mazrich, which would seem to indicate that they were together at the Chatzar, at the court of the Magad, and they and they, it would it would it would indicate that Rav Pinchas Horovitz was a close student of the Magad. Rav David Kavanetsky makes a makes a very bold. Uh, statement that this letter is a forgery, and then he proceeds to go ahead and list all his proofs. I'm not sure if his prov- proofs are very convincing, to me at least, though it, it is, it, there is what to acknowledge that the tone of the letter is a bit strange at times, but I'm not sure if I would go ahead and, you know, make that an extreme statement like that, that it's a forgery. So that, of course, is going to remain a, a point of dispute as well. So in summary, the Hafla was definitely by the, you know, spent time at the Magid, and he considered himself a Chassid, and in his private life he adhered to Hasidic custom. It's also clear that it was a private affair, and he never established a court or taught it to anyone. All that is pretty much certain. What's still left uh, in doubt is how much, and in dispute, was how much time did he spend in Ravna at the Magid, to what extent was he the Magid's disciple, and what direct influence did the Magid have on his life and his career? I'm too small, of course, to take sides in this great dispute, so we'll just leave it at that by me presenting the two sides, and the listeners can decide which one they like better. If the listeners are interested, then all the links are available on that Hebrew Wikipedia page, like I mentioned, of the Aflah. In summary, it should once again be mentioned that any direct connection that the Aflah was said to have with the Vilna Gain is probably also in the realm of legend and most likely never happened as well. The reality is that the Afla left a great legacy. His rabbinate in Frankfurt, his Sfarim, the Hasidic, uh, in, in Hasidic circles and in Lamdish Yeshivish circles. The most enduring legacy is his Sfarim, which continued to have many devotees and a large impact until this very day. So this is Yehuda Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.